today, um, our topic is a hot topic, um, is on cybersecurity. So today I'm joined by Cameron Whitfield, our cybersecurity partner based in Melbourne. Um, so maybe I would just let Cam say hi to all you all and introduce himself. Uh, thanks, Peggy, and hi everyone. Um, uh, yeah, my name is Cameron. You can call me Cam. Uh, I uh, have been advising in this space for a number of years, and probably uh, since about middle of 2019 onwards, have uh, advised almost exclusively in this space, helping clients deal with, uh, quite frankly, one of the most significant risks facing corporates around the world at this particular point in time, and that's the, the risks associated with cybersecurity and cyber attacks. So um, that's me, and I'm delighted to be here, Peggy. Thank you. Thanks, Cam. So um, for me, I am an Asia data and cyber lawyer based in Singapore. Um, so um, without further ado, maybe we start the first uh, question. So uh, Cam, can you um, let us know, um, you know what are the general corporate cyber trends right now? Yeah, uh, the, uh, there's two ways of look, looking at sort of trends at the moment. One is to look at trends in terms of external trends, um, cybersecurity threats, if you like, but also there's there are trends that exist within corporates. And if I can make a couple of observations based on my experience and some of the work I've been doing in recent years, um, there is uh, often... Uh, an issue that confronts corporates here in Australia, whether they are retail-facing or consumer-facing facing businesses or otherwise, that the environment in which they operate is very complex. It's a complex landscape. It's, it's technically, um, or the technology is complex. And some corporates are finding that environment almost too complex to secure. And so we've got a real issue that's we're confronting ourselves around the complexity of our business. Also, many corporates face what I call blind spots in relation to third parties. Many organizations rely very heavily on suppliers and third parties and suppliers rely on suppliers. And often these incidents occur through vulnerabilities from those suppliers, not necessarily the corporate itself. And so again, that's a significant issue that's confronting many organizations, a bit of a blind spot about how to protect themselves around those third party suppliers. And then the final point I'll make is on this is that um, what's really important within a corporate is that we're all speaking the same language. Um, and whether that's a chief information security officer or a CEO or the board, we have to be understood. And historically, there's been a bit of an issue around understanding each other. And sometimes it's the language associated with technology that's hard to understand if you're not um, qualified in it. And so breaching that uh, or um, solving that um, problem around the delivery and language is also an, an issue that's confronting corporates at the moment. So there's three, Peggy, I'll highlight for now before we talk about the broader th threat landscape. Definitely, um, you know, cybersecurity is definitely high up on um, every organization's agenda. Everyone uh, has recognized the importance of, uh, you know, cybersecurity and, um, and cybersecurity resilience. Um, and I also share the view that a lot of times uh, when a lawyer comes to the board, um, the board do not speak the same language as the IT team. And as the cyber lawyer, we have this task of like being a bridge, um, being able to communicate with, with um, you know, both groups um, in order to come up with, uh, you know, decision, uh, good decision making. Um, yeah, I, I agree, Peggy. And, and one of the values that we bring 
often as advisors in this at this point in time is the ability to help make sure there isn't a language problem so people are understood there's nothing more important than being well understood either before during or after an incident yeah sure okay then um after talking about internally um how important this issue is and the implications how about externally what's the current threat landscape yeah, the threat landscape, Peggy, is changing um, so rapidly, and that's why it's so important for uh, companies, particularly those that um, hold a significant amount of sensitive or personal information. That's often the case with a consumer-facing or a retail-facing business. Uh, it's important for them to be aware that the changing landscape often it means that they need to change the way in which they prepare for these uh, these potential attacks. So, of course, ransomware continues to be a significant issue um, globally, uh, and it doesn't appear to be waning um, mm. or abating, not in the way that we would have liked. So, um, the model is still alive and well. Uh, I mentioned before third-party risks. There's definitely a, a increasing risk profile around what I call corporate third parties and the uh, attacks that come in through those third parties. And it's not the third parties that attack, it's the vulnerabilities in those third parties. Then things like current affairs and social engineering, using current affairs as bait for phishing exercises, um, using social engineering is important. Um, we also have, of course, a, a interesting cryptocurrency market at the moment, as uh, mm. as you know, and perhaps a, a crypto market which, on one hand, many think is hard to trace, but in actual fact, um, isn't that difficult, and certainly in the Bitcoin space. So while cryptocurrency is the currency of choice when it comes to things like ransomware, um, it's often a uh, a currency, if I can call it that, um, that mm. is perhaps more traceable than other um, than um, what otherwise you would otherwise think. And then finally, I I do make the point that we are in a complex geopolitical environment at the moment, and we don't have to look too much further than what's happening in Eastern Europe to know that um, you know things are delicate, uh, and so cyber risks are increasing in the context of that geopolitical complexity. Definitely. Um, and to be honest, I think a lot of the threat actors, they're professionals, their jobs, so um, they're bound to be very creative. Um, they uh, oh, think yeah. come up with new tactics to hack systems. Okay. Yeah, um, so it's almost changing daily. It's one of those things. Yeah. It's yesterday's risk is not necessarily today's risk. So. Yeah, so companies need to make sure they, um, in, they would uh, be able to come up with dynamic response plans. Yes. You know, nothing is set in on stone. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so um, I think the next topic um, is more relevant, um, you know, to consumers than the business. Yes. So, what are the specific threats to consumers facing? Yeah. Again, we've talked about these broader risks, which apply almost universally across all industries. Um, I wish I could say that the threat to consumer-facing businesses, retail-facing businesses has uh, abated. That is not the case. Year on year, um, retail businesses, consumer-facing businesses are high on the list of, um, of preferred uh, victims, if I can put it that way. Um, and in fact, many reputable sources would say that 
um, the threat landscape when it comes to retail is probably one of the highest amongst all sort of industries. And in many respects, it's because of the nature of the data that's involved. Um, and also because those businesses often rely on continuous um, uninterrupted operational availability. And so if a threat actor can get into the environment and stop that uh, continuous or uninterrupted availability, then that can be a particular stress point for a customer or for, for a client um, or a victim of a crime in this case. Um, so there are also some threat actors that appear to be targeting the retail space more specifically than others. And I have to say that the biggest threat continues in the uh, in the retail space and quite frankly across the board to be what I call malicious or criminal threat activity. We still have human error. We still have uh, uh, system related errors which cause um, cyber related issues. But uh, regrettably, the majority of incidents remain criminal or malicious uh, attacks. Yes. And, um, you know, I think it's quite apparent that consumer sector, given that it's a data consume, uh, intensive business, um, um, it could be an easy target for uh, threat actors. Um, okay, so um, I've been talking about the risk landscape. I think um, time for us to um, maybe talk a little bit about um, the legal implications. I think one of them sure. is uh, breach notification. Um, yes. So um, I know that, like, uh, Across the region, I think mandatory breach notification has come, become the norm, except for a few jurisdictions in Asia. So um, what's your take on this one? Yeah, look, uh, there is no doubt that most, most countries are moving towards mandatory breach notifications. They often appear within uh, privacy regimes. And uh, that's, that occurs despite the fact that privacy is only really one component of a cyber breach we're having if you think about what occurs during an attack system downtime you know the lack of it availability um the inability to interact or do business in the way that you normally do um all of those things are um are happening sort of consistently and so for me uh, i think when it when we look at the changes in the law we still have um, uh, those things occurring, but also this influx of after the fact notifications. And bearing in mind that we talk about a notification, the breach has already occurred, the attack has already occurred, the compromise has already occurred. And so we're dealing with information that's designed to inform regulators about the nature of threats and also protect individuals that have been impacted. But it doesn't actually stop the attack in the first place. And so Yes, while we're seeing a massive uh, increase in breach notifications, it's only one part of the so solution to this to this problem. It's an important part. Uh, I'll take, make a couple of comments about what we're seeing in terms of the type of breach notification. Some of them have vast differences in terms of timing, ranging from 12 hours to 72 hours to um, sometimes no time frame at all, but a notification obligation to occur as soon as reasonably practicable, uh, those types of uh, time frames. So we're seeing shifts in relation to, to that, but also shifts in relation to how you assess whether you notify. And sometimes organizations will, or legislation will require you to notify simply because there's been a cybersecurity attack. Others will require you to notify if there has been an impact upon an individual or, or personal information. So there's, it's, these 
um, these regimes are bifurcating into two different uh, strategies. One where you notify immediately, irrespective of the impact, and one where you notify, or irrespective of the impact of people or individuals, and one that's targeted towards individuals. Certainly here in Australia, and I know in other parts regionally, we're dealing with a risk-based assessment based on the impact of an, of, uh, to an individual. For example, here in Australia, you have to make an assessment about whether there's been an eligible data breach, and that's an assessment of whether or not the breach is going to cause or is likely to cause serious harm to an individual. And that's a complicated assessment. Um, not every breach will cause serious harm to a particular individual. And the guidance that we get is, um, we get from the regulators here is that that serious harm has to be more probable than not. And so again, we've got two different types of regimes and even within those regimes, complexity as to how to assess whether or not to notify or not. I'm not too sure what you're seeing regionally as well, Peggy. I'd be keen to understand what you're seeing, whether it's consistent with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think I would uh, just, uh, you know, elaborate more on um, the um, difficulty in assessing whether a breach is notifiable across different mm. jurisdictions. Uh, I think you're right that, you know, a lot of times, um, you, know, uh, you know, if um, the uh, assessment is uh, based on significant, significant harm, I think, um, the difficulty is um, different regulators apply different tests as to what amounts to significant harm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so for example, in Singapore, um, the legislation and the regulations actually have um, you know, a big assumption that you know, if certain type of information is leaked, then um, they presumably um, that will uh, constitute significant harm to individuals. So for example, yeah. if individuals' full name and their national ID number is leaked, then um, this will um, meet the requirements for reporting. Another um, parameter in assessing whether a breach is notifiable is, um, you know, uh, whether um, the breach is of significant scale. So um, we do. So I will refer them as a harm test and a harm test and a scale test. So um, just taking Singapore as an example, um, there are two uh, tests. Um, in terms of the uh, scale test, um, again, there's the presumption that if um, more than 500 data subjects uh, have been affected, if their data has been compromised, then um, that uh, breach is um, notifiable in Singapore because it um, you know, meets the uh, scale test under uh, Singapore regulations. So uh, as you can see, um, my experience is, um, you know, when uh, we try to run this test uh, in different jurisdictions, um, obviously we uh, work with local council or our um, specialists uh, in the network. Um, the outcome will be different depending on the test of the regulators as well as, um, uh, you know, the actual uh, fact scenarios. Because sometimes, um, you know, when you look at the forensic evidence, um, you know, it will make a difference as to, you know, whether, um, you know, um, the hat, the threat actor has made a copy of the data or they just merely may have gained access to data. This will affect um, your assessment as to whether the harm is significant. So you can see that actually involves a lot of professional judgments um, in deciding whether a breach is notifiable. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And also when you deal with these different threats, it used to be that, for example, in the ransomware context, the threat actor would just lock up your data. Now they are locking it up and stealing the data as well and threatening to dump that data on the dark web or publish it elsewhere. That's called a double extortion. So again, you have not just 
tackle the complexity of whether or not you notify, you have to decide whether to notify in the context of the actual incident, which has been changing over time. So does that, does that uh, for example, does the harm or is the harm caused or is the significance of the incident large enough when it's an encryption? Does it change if there's an encryption and a theft of data? So again, there's a lot that goes into that analysis and the timeframes are very short, Peggy, as you know. Yeah. And so you have to make this assessment and um, with with pace, unfortunately. Yes. Um, yeah, so definitely, um, you know, just the notification piece alone could be a challenge, and not to uh, forget you know, the other aspects uh, in uh, cyber response, uh, incident response. Um, okay, I think uh, we um, should come to the last topic, given uh, that we don't have um, a lot of time. So sure. I think the last topic is really um, the shift of focus to response. Um, so um, as, as I understand that, you know, nowadays the folks are more aware of their uh, responsibility and liabilities in this area. So um, what's your experience of working with board members? Yeah, uh, there's no doubt that um, there has been a shift in recent times from regulators regionally to look to hold boards and directors to an account, to account um, much more than in the past. And in fact, some regulators are pointing directly at boards and saying, you are the ultimate, ultimately you are responsible uh, for cybersecurity issues in relation to the company in which you uh, are a board member. And so would that focus directly on boards um, and an increased scrutiny from regulators, the boards have to ask them, ask themselves, am I prepared? Are we prepared? And there are many, many things which boards should be engaged on and, and be prepared in relation to, but I call out three major issues. Um, these are always risks, risk assessments that are relative to the company in which these directors are, um, are governing. And so it's not a, an assessment in the abstract, it's always a risk assessment in relation to the company, and that goes to directors' duties in relation to that company. So again, understanding your own company's cyber risk is very, very important. Also within a board, clarity on roles. Now there's a trend, and certainly in the US, there's a drive to actually make um, boards report on the expertise that exists within the board or how they're able to actually uh, source expertise. So again, are you clear on the role that you have as a board member? And also who on the board member or how as a board are you getting the right sort of advice around cyber? And then finally, um, and perhaps overlooked, but arguably the most important aspect is understanding how you hold your data, how you collect, how you retain, how you manage and use your, your data, because ultimately these attacks involve compromises of your data. And so um, if a boards can do one thing, they can look at the companies and, and asks, ask their companies, how are we protecting our data, particularly our most valuable and sensitive data, and make sure that's protected sufficiently. And then of course, we can um, develop a risk profile around broader data sets, but absolutely knowing where your data is, how you protect it, how you retain it, how you use it, and quite frankly, when you're finished with it, how you get rid of it. So yeah, those are probably three critical things. That's not a definitive list. There are many other things to consider, but that's that's a sample of the sort of things which often uh, we discuss in front of board. Definitely. I think the board should definitely have the oversight over how data is used by organizations. Okay, um, I think uh, that's... Uh, we have come to the end of our session. So thank you very much, Cam. So I hope everyone You're welcome. Uh, 
I have enjoyed our discussion. Thank you. Right. See you soon. Bye. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.